0: Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate and, in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the program. And at this hour, real estate prices
1: rise and fall based on the laws of supply and demand. When the demand for real estate is high, prices skyrocket. When the number of available properties increases, prices usually drop. Supply and demand in real estate uh, is not easy to balance. Making more property takes time, and it may not be possible for supply to increase in time to meet consumer demand. Understanding this basic economic principle can help consumers decide the best time to buy or sell property. Once you do indeed make up uh, make that decision, there are several steps to follow to ensure a smooth transition uh, and a transaction and a journey. And boy, it is a journey. We have an attorney here today and a banker, and we're going to break it all down for you. going to talk about the process of real estate. Everybody wants to know how easy or how difficult it is. Well, we're going to break it down. But first, I would like to welcome my listeners in the United States and around the world. I am Vince Rocco, and you are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate. The panel is here, and we will get to all of that and much more. Special guest today with me is Andrew Luptick, a partner in the legal firm Chavez & Perlowitz. Also here is Stephen Lasher, a banker from Wells Fargo. Stephen uh, is a sales manager and founding member of the Wells Fargo private uh, mortgage banking team in New York. He joined Wells Fargo in 2003 and quickly became the number one retail Mortgage originator in Manhattan and is a member of the organization's elite President's Club, having ranked in the top 1% nationally for the past 14 years. Stephen specializes in new development and loan financing, condominiums, co-ops, and multifamily properties, and has extensive experience with borrowers and developers of all backgrounds and property types, having successfully originated and funded over $2 billion in residential mortgage transactions throughout his career. Wow, is that impressive?
2: The rest of us can all go home now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bye.
1: See I'd be on permanent vacation with those kind of sales, right? <laughs> Good Lord. He received a Bachelor's of Science in Interdisciplinary Studies with a concentration in Social and Economic Policy from Boston University. I'm also intrigued all the time with all of the degrees that we all have that are so unrelated to real estate. It's amazing, right? It's really amazing. They don't teach this stuff in school. Andrew is a partner in his firm, and manages the firm's transactional practice, which focuses on the representation of purchasers and sellers of residential and commercial properties with an emphasis on condominiums, cooperatives, and multi and single family homes. He is heavily, also heavily involved in the firm's representation of institutional and private lenders in closing acquisitions and refinancing loans secured by residential and commercial properties. And as I told him earlier this morning in the green room, he is one of the most accessible real estate attorneys in New York City. He seems to be all over the place and super well-known. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having us. morning. Well, thank you. My pleasure. So, let's get at it. A real estate transaction is the process whereby rights in a unit of property or designated real estate is transferred between two or more properties. That is, in case of conveyance, one party being the seller, the other party being the buyer or buyers, it can often be quite complicated due to the complexity of the property rights being transferred. The amount of money being exchanged or the government regulations. In more abstract terms, the real estate transaction, like other financial transactions, causes a lot of costs. Depending on the property, those costs can be large. So, Andrew, to start with you, there are so many different types of contracts, and there are so many different stages of the process that we go through to get a transaction closed. I mean, everybody says, well, you identify a property. You put an offer and you get an accepted offer. That accepted offer is golden. Well, in fact, it's just an accepted offer. And a deal isn't a deal uh, until, as the brokers here will tell you, until we are actually – a deal isn't a completed deal until you're at that closing table and you get that check in hand. And everybody at the table, especially the buyers and sellers, are happy. So, you know, take us through the, the 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 stages initially from the time that you get a call from either your clients or a broker or both when they tell you I have an accepted offer. What are the next steps?
3: We always say you know the accepted offer is actually only the beginning. Um, although the brokers have you know spent hopefully a few weeks, you know most likely a few months if not longer with clients in New York for better or worse. You know there's no legal significance until we have a contract signed. Um, so New York's a special place, right? The pace of our market. Um, is incredible. So we tell clients, listen, you know, you have an accepted offer. It's, it's a great step, but it's maybe step one out of 10, right? We need to move through your deal at a high level quickly. We're not going to rush, but momentum is critical. Um, for the reason there's no legal significance, right? The, the sellers, you'll have open houses until we're in contract. Um, they might shop around different offers. There might be competitive offers. So we need to move with momentum, um, So initially, you know, off the bat, we're working on due diligence and contract negotiations. Uh, We work on those items simultaneously. And just generally, due diligence is educating the client about the building, right? We're reviewing board minutes. We actually go to the managing agent's office who runs the day-to-day operation of the building, review board minutes. We review audited financial statements. We review what's called an offering plan. An offering plan is a prospectus about the building that was approved by the attorney general's office. The last piece is actually, is probably the best piece for us, is a questionnaire. The questionnaire will give us the most up-to-date, accurate information. Unfortunately, board minutes aren't always so thorough. The financials might not be updated. So the questionnaire will give us, you know, real-time information.
1: You know, and that questionnaire oftentimes can be uh, very (laughs) instrumental and can also be a, a bone to contend with because it's so difficult oftentimes to get those questionnaires out of the managing agent's office. Complete and correct, but let me ask you a question. Because our audience is national, our audience is international. So, outside of New York City, most real, real estate transactions are handled without attorneys. Can you explain to us or the listenership out there who may say,
3: "Well, why is there an attorney involved in this process anyway?" A great question. I'm I'm happy there are attorneys involved in New York, <laughs> um, but as, no, we as, we as have, are we <laughs> as are <laughs> we. We have international clients. We have California uh, clients in California, all over the country, of course. But it's funny when I speak to a, cal- a client in California. You know, I think I'm making up, you know, the process. Um, in New York, I think there, there's more of a vetting process. Um, there's more of a due diligence process. Um, and, you know, even, you know, Stephen will tell us the banks have attorneys. You know, when you show up to the closing, every loan, there has to be an attorney representing the bank at the closing. Um, you know, I don't know if there's a golden answer, but, you know, it is New York. New York tends to be, listen, um, overly involved sometimes, of, of course, but. Um, but it, it's routine every party you know in the process should have an attorney sometimes the buildings have an attorney that, that represents them at the closing the greatest so, city in the world comes with its complications for sure for sure
1: let's talk about contingencies it is a provision in a real estate contract that specifies the contract would cease to exist upon the occurrence of a certain event happening okay outside of the norm of a, a regular contract for example the contract has contingent upon the buyer successfully obtaining a mortgage so that would be a mortgage contingency what what do contingencies really mean in a contract and how many are there? I mean, other than a, a financing contingency, what other options are available for buyers out there today?
3: In New York, I think New York is probably unique in that standpoint. There aren't a ton of contingencies. Uh, a financing contingency is definitely a common one, but also in New York, there are many cash deals or, or deals where the uh, buyer has the option to finance, but it's not contingent. So contingent means, hey, listen, you know, once we sign the contract, if you're not able to obtain a loan commitment for any reason, right, whether you're not financeable or the building's not financeable or the property doesn't appraise at the right value, you can get your down payment back. The funny part is, and again, Stephen can tell us that, you know, once you're, and the, the one of the positives, I think, of New York, it's such a vetting process, you know, between the brokers, between the attorney, between the bankers, even before the accepted offer comes in, 99% of people probably get loans, right? So the contingency, thankfully, doesn't come into play, but it gives buyers a comfort level a lot of it has to do with market, you know, standards, you know, you know, competition. Um, Are you seeing a lot of appraisal contingencies these days? Uh, we're seeing – appraisal is definitely part of a routine contingency. You know, sometimes, you know, clients will – or will encourage clients to what's called bifurcate the contingency saying, listen – you know you're financeable you're not worried about your own financials but maybe you want protection against the building right we don't control the building there it's a small building maybe a lot of you know maybe there aren't a lot of transactions in the building year to year and and or or maybe you know you're just you're okay with yourself you're okay with the building steven said the building's approved by wells fargo it's rock solid but you're worried about the appraisal right if you can't get a certain amount of financing you don't want to be on the hook you know for an all cash deal so, certainly.
1: What actually makes a contract valid? I mean, there are so many stages within the contract process. What actually makes it valid, complete, where then we can pass it on to Stephen and, and he can start the, the mortgage process? Because without the valid, finished, done contract, he can't really begin in his underwriting process or, or his financing process. What sure. actually makes
3: it uh, uh, valid? Sure. And the process typically is the buyer has to sign. The buyer will sign first, put down a 10% down payment deposit check which is we send to the seller's attorney. The seller will sign. The seller's attorney actually signs as escrow agent. So you have a buyer signing, a seller signing, the seller's attorney signing escrow agent, and you need what's called consideration. Consideration is the 10% deposit in New York. Then it must be delivered back to both parties, correct? Then it's sent back to the buyer's attorney. At that point, once the buyer's attorney receives it, whether it's email or hard copy, then you have an enforceable contract. Stephen, whether you need a
1: new home loan or re- you're refinancing an existing loan, you, there are uh, lots of steps and lots of options that you go through. So the steps, first of all, you've got to be pre-approved. Then you've got to start, start shopping for an apartment or a home with an agent, hopefully. Uh, then there's the mortgage loan application process, the mortgage loan processing, mortgage loan underwriting process, and then actually, <laughs> and then the closing. Help me understand, help our listeners, again, around the world understand what is actually the 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 process by which a buyer comes to you, gets pre-approved, and then at the end of that cycle sits at a closing table and closes that transaction.
4: Sure. <clears throat> yeah, I think to Andrew's point, uh, things move quickly, specifically in our submarket and I think in any real estate transaction in general. And so I think it's about being prepared and being proactive, um, more so than reactive. And so I think the pre-approval process is something that should occur um, really well before you know any offers are really even put out into the market or accepted. Um, What I found is when we have a buyer that's been pre-approved with us during the early stages, um, then it helps uh, for you as the real estate brokerage community to uh, effectively and quickly uh, negotiate a contract. So um, I'll get to some of those specific points regarding the pre-approval. But to Andrew's point as it relates to a financing contingency or understanding whether the building is something that we would be able to finance in, uh, if we're engaged with that buyer and they have a good team around them, great real estate broker, great attorney, great mortgage banker, And I think when things fall into play, they can execute quickly. And if they need to go in non-contingent on financing, um, then we vetted them fully by not only issuing a piece of paper, which uh, is based on the information that's been provided to us. So a a pre-approval would typically be a point where we would take a full loan application from a borrower. We would obtain their name, date of birth, social security number, all the prevalent financial information uh, to give them them guidance on what it is we feel they could qualify for and purchase. Uh, That said, many buyers... Don't necessarily, um, they may earn a specific amount of money, but they might not be reporting exactly that amount of money in, uh, on their federal tax return. Uh, many people take specific tax deductions, um, <clears throat> which would reduce the actual cash distributions to them mm-hmm. that we may not be able to use to qualify. So I think it's really key upfront to obtain that application information and then gather the supporting documentation so that when it comes time for execution, we're well prepared.
1: When you're in a, when when the buyer is in a, a a very competitive situation, a hot market, multiple offers, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and they've got to go in waiving the financing contingency. How risky is that for the buyer? And and what what kind of conversations do you have with the buyer to assure them that you know their broker is giving them good advice? The market is what it is. It's a hot situation. You want this property, and the only way to do that financing is to just kind of make it a cash deal and, and waive the financing. How risky is that, I mean, for people?
4: You know, that's a question I'd probably defer to Andrew on since he's legal counsel, but what I would say... I'm going to ask is, both of you, uh, actually. Um, but in general, I think that it's key to have all of that supporting documentation to have fully vetted the collateral, specifically in New York, the condo or the co-op itself. So uh, we have an extremely thorough database uh, as it relates to uh, properties in Manhattan. So if it's a co-op, um, we can uh, very quickly know um, what the overall financial profile of the building is, what the owner occupancy of that building is, um, and our comfort level with financing there. Um, so,
1: Andrew, is it, a, is it a tough situation when a buyer says to you, "Oh my God, Mr. Lawyer, what do I do here? They want me to waive, you know, the contingency, and if I don't get a mortgage, you know, I lose my down payment." I mean, that's really what it comes down to.
3: Right. I think if you're working with a sophisticated team, you know, top people, it's it should um, the analysis should be. Almost not easy to obtain, but you should have a a good answer. I mean, breaking it down, right, to see if a buyer is financeable. You know, it's not a guessing game. You know, you send your tax returns. Stephen runs your credit. If you're an independent contractor, um, you see where you are financially. The bank should be able to tell you, hey, listen, you can get a loan for a million dollars. You're good for 1.5. That shouldn't be a guessing game, right? So then you break down the building the building many banks especially wells fargo have a huge database they can say listen this building is financeable this building is financeable but the insurance runs out in a month we have to get it updated this building is small we haven't seen transaction in it. so that shouldn't be a guessing game and even you know if the bank hasn't financed the building recently again you know we do hundreds of transactions a year if I tell you this past year, one person, you know, or two people, probably less than five, I, I'd be very confident to say got denied financing. The big part, the big, you know, uncertainty, or if there is an uncertainty, is the appraisal. And then, you know, we shift. I'll shift the risk to to you, the real estate broker, to say, listen, are there comps? Listen, if there are no comps in the building, no comps in the neighborhood, and you're bidding fifty thousand dollars over asking price, clearly there's a chance it doesn't appraise. But if you are financing you know a small percentage right if you're financing 50% and even if you don't you're not going to get an appraisal contingency, even if the appraisal comes in you're still going to get that loan. Will you not be happy if it doesn't appraise for the contract price Maybe but you should have you know reasonable expectations that, that may happen. If you're financing 80%, you can barely afford the apartment and you're just you know shot in the dark then you know then it's not an educated decision right but what Steven said being re- uh, proactive, not reactive, um, is critical. All right. We have to leave it there. We will be back on the other side of
1: the break. We're going to talk to Steve and Andrew about new developments and those buildings. We're live from Last Off Productions here in New York City. This is Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. Don't go away.
0: Streaming live. The leader in internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com
5: It's not easy to make it big in New York City. It's even harder to sustain that success for decades. However, two teams have defied those odds due to their formulas for success. Both have all-star rosters performing at the top of their game. Each have an undying commitment to greatness, a willingness to evolve, superior training programs, and ownership that invests heavily in their products it only seemed natural for the world's most valuable sports brand to partner with Halstead, a market leader in the New York metro area, and now proudly serving as the official luxury real estate firm of the New York Yankees.
0: Now, back to the show. All right, everybody. We are here with Stephen Lasher and Andrew Luftick. We are also
1: joined by the panel. Niall Lundgren is here from Compass. Anna Shagaloff is here from Halstead Real Estate. Matthew Cohen from Core Real Estate. <laughs> it's so funny about that. <laughs> it's so funny. I love that. We think you're funny, too. <laughs> Ray, Raymond Lord from Douglas Elliman. Uh, and uh, Noah Kaplan from Nest Seekers. And Sean McPeak from Compass. Boy, that's a laundry list this morning. All right, guys. I wanted to ask a couple of questions about new development sales. So we have an attorney. We have a banker. A broker comes to you or a buyer comes to you. And it's a new dev deal so what you know what are the differences between you know um financing and and lawyering a new dev deal versus a, a resale deal in new york city again everything you know in new york city is is exaggerated and everything is is done very differently here but new development sometimes can pose some interesting questions and obstacles especially when you're under a certain sales point like <coughs> under 30 percent of the building sold banks get nervous attorneys get nervous buyers definitely get nervous how do we handle that Andrew, what do you what do you see typically in your new development business?
3: Well, the new development, it's I guess it's all relative as well. You can have a new development where they haven't broken broken ground yet; they're not closing for two years, as opposed to a new development where you're buying from the sponsor and you can see your unit. It's there; it's ready to go. If you had cash, you can close, you know, a few weeks. Um, so, new development, you know. In general, my job as a real estate attorney in New York, it's not supposed to be, or I don't view it as adversarial. This isn't court. This isn't litigation. This isn't TV. You know, our job is really to educate clients, educate clients about, you know, due diligence in the contract. With the uh, new development, there's typically less room for negotiation, you know, so and more room for education. Um, we, you know, th- there's less... Uh, Less due diligence meaning you're not involved with more you know third parties such as a managing agent. We have that offering plan, that prospectus to review. It's it's a thick book. There's a lot to review there, but we're giving the client lots of information, helping them review. So there there are typically aren't audited financials. There might be you know a, a real estate tax opinion. There's certainly you know a budget in place. So it, it's it's you know essentially the same idea, but a, a few different moving parts. Um, the timing element. You know, usually they want it signed quicker than maybe a resale, just because you're not there aren't as many moving parts, so you should be able to get it accomplished a little quicker. Um, but a lot of it is teaching clients about you know worst case scenarios, you know closing costs. The closing costs for a new development can be dramatically higher than say a you know co op all cash, a co op all cash versus a condo new development financing. You know the closing costs are dramatically different. So just making sure the clients are aware, um, making sure they're aware of. You know, listen. You're signing a contract. The project's not done yet. You know what's going to happen when we get a notice to close? What are the next steps? You know, how are you protected in case? You know, how do I sign a contract? Well, I don't know if the project's going to be completed. It's going to be completed as per the contract. You know, how are we going to protect you in case you walk in on your walkthrough and there are issues? You know, so just really giving clients a comfort level. You know, that's a big term I use for any deal. Giving, a, how do I give you a comfort level? How do I educate you? How do I protect you against the worst case scenario? The project's not going to be done for two years. God forbid there's a crane crash, you know, a 9-11, something of that that nature. And a lot of these deals, you know, maybe it's a good segue, are non-contingent regarding financing. So think about this. You're signing a contract on a deal and it's not closing for two years and the sponsor or the seller uh, of the project is not giving you a mortgage contingency, right? Do you have security in yourself, the building, to know that you're going to get a financing. Can we protect you in any way? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. It's, it's certainly based on the market. Stephen, I mean, how does the bank handle situations like, you know, closings probably two
1: years out. You've got to first, you know, clear the building for for financing and then take
4: it from there. Sure. I mean, I think there are two main components to new development that are key to identify up front. One would be the building's overall structure um, because it's non-existent. Everything in that offering plan is based on pro forma financial data um, or, or estimations of what will take place in the future. For us, I think the key uh, or for anyone purchasing a new development and the financing piece uh, would be to really pick up the the offering plan and take a look at the special risks along with the Schedule A of the offering plan and the Schedule B, which would be the budget. I think if you take a quick peek at those three quick components, it'll give us a good idea whether it's something that we would be comfortable financing. Uh, I think in this market, uh, with land prices having increased the way that they have, we're seeing the structure of some of these condos um, change. They're not typically a standard ground-up construction where we can anticipate delivery in 12, 18, or 24 months. Um. where really our only major concern is to know that the building is selling, right? And that we see good sales velocity and that, let's say, ideally per policy, 50% of those units are in contract, not closed, but in contract before we would finance a unit. Uh, that's standard policy. There are many occasions where uh, we have the capability to step in and finance much earlier in terms of pre-sale um, on a case-by-case basis. Um, but I do think that it is key uh, to understand the project. Many of these buildings are now conversions. These conversions have large percentages of commercial square footage in them that may fall outside of standard kind of collateral credit policy. Uh, many of them have rent stabilized tenants in them. You know, what is the outlook for those tenants? How long do they plan to be in the unit, um, long term, etc.?
1: Do you guys look into at all the the developers behind these new buildings to see what their track record is, what their you know um, uh, history has been? I mean, we for the most part uh, have you know, big name developers in this town that have done this stuff many times before. So they're pretty, you know, safeguarded. But do you really take that into consideration at all? It's, or It's not? not
4: a formal component of our, you know, credit review process to evaluate kind of the historical reputation of a developer. Though when you do pull up that special risk component, if they've, um, you know, been involved in something, Let's say uh, litigation, of some some sort of sort of litigation of some sort of litigation of some sort typically would be identified in that component of the offering plan,
1: and then we get to the closing table, and everybody loves the closing table, especially all the bro- especially all the brokers in this room, because what happens? We get paid, and you all get paid. So, you know, what <laughs> what about the closing is so special to <laughs> to the transaction? I mean, I, for obvious reasons, the buyer is happy, the seller is happy, people you know move on and and you know do new things mm-hmm. with their life. But um, I do have a question, though, with the closing, because people ask me all the time, why oftentimes does it take the bank so long? The closing you know, takes an hour to two hours, depending, and you're sitting there, and usually you're waiting about a half an hour or more for the bank to come up with the final funding for the loan, and everybody's kind of looking at each other around the table saying, okay, <laughs> what's next? No, I agree. You know, one of the, the I just went through that, and then some. My my buyer kept saying to me, "But what's happening? What's happening?" I'm like, "Just relax. Everything is fine." Well, that should
4: actually be days of the past, quite candidly. I mean, due to some of the new regulations that have rolled out per trade um, and some of the Dodd Frank reform, um, really, banks are required to provide what's called a closing disclosure now, rather than what was called a HUD settlement statement. Correct. Um, that closing disclosure provides a full breakdown. Um, of all closing costs that will take place at the transaction and that will be incurred by the buyer and the seller, candidly. Uh, that disclosure is required to be out and acknowledged by that buyer, um, typically at least 72 hours prior to closing per our Wells Fargo policy. So in that instance, mm-hmm. really, the loan must be clear to close for that acknowledgement, uh, that disclosure to be issued and acknowledged. So there really shouldn't be an instance at this point where the funds and paperwork are not well-prepared and, mm-hmm. uh, and at closing on time, so... Especially when we've had, you know, two years, let's say, on a new development um, to, to deliver that commitment and funding. So
3: Some banks, I think what it may be is some banks want to see a few documents, the funding documents signed, even though the closing disclosure has been acknowledged. At the physical closing, they want to see or have scanned over to them uh, a few of the documents, a few of the loan documents before they actually allow the bank attorney to release the funds. Yeah, we, I was just at a closing... Somebody l- might be at lunch, you know, and, and waiting for the you're waiting for approval and that person's at lunch. Correct. I was just Correct. at a closing, I
1: think it was two weeks ago, and, or, and there was a, a flurry of activity with needing to send the bank uh, a bunch of signed documents from the closing table, and then it took another, I don't know, half an hour from then, and we suspected that this person was out to lunch and couldn't sign off on it until they got back. Yeah, literally or figuratively. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and so, I mean, it was a very calm and very nice closing, so we all had a good time. But, you know, people don't understand sometimes what the hang-up is, you know, uh, with all that stuff. But anyway, um, I just, I'm I, I'm often amazed at how, <clears throat> you know, there seems to be a big difference between, you know, new condo closings and, you know, resale closings, especially if it's a co-op, because a co-op is a lot more complex, because, you know, you've got the managing agent on board, and they've got to sign off on a whole bunch of things, and the stock, and the lease, and whatever. How efficient, Andrew, for you, how efficient, uh, how much more efficient is a condo closing brand new development than a, than a co-op? I mean,
3: uh, yeah, listen, certainly for the co-op, there are more parties involved. Either way, our goal is always to make the closing ceremonious, right? You can have, yeah. listen, transactions are not always fun. You know, there's ups and downs, but, you know, for all of us, you know, we're in sales and, and we also, you know value the client's uh, future business. And, and we want to make the closing ceremony. So the goal is to be proactive. And the goal is to really line things up in our city, whether it's bankers, brokers, or attorneys, you have a lot of people that dabble in real estate, right? That don't do this full time, that don't, you know, maybe take it seriously, but just don't have, you know, the wherewithal to have done, you know, hundreds or thousands of deals and to know the nuances. I, I always explain to clients on my first phone call, initial phone call, I can explain any concept, you know, to to anybody and you'll get it right away. The hard part is there's so many concepts, so many parties involved, so many moving parts, which complicates things. You know, a simple concept, you know, can be overlooked and it can derail a deal for a month. So with a co-op, that's the problem. You know, you're sitting down and you have six parties, you know, you have two attorneys, you might have a bank attorney, a co-op attorney, you have real estate brokers. So they're just, I mean, anytime you have seven people involved in a transaction, inevitably, you know, it's like, you know, you know uh, orchestra trying to you know put together 15 you know violinists, it's difficult. So um, there's and with a uh, as opposed to a condo, new development, you basically have two attorneys. you only have a title company involved, but they're they're less moving parts, I guess, All right, We have to leave it there and take a break. This is good morning, New York on the Voice America Variety channel. Don't go away.
7: Stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in your brain inspiring really fast.
0: All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco, if you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we are back with Nana Lungren from Compass,
1: Anna Shagala from Halstead Real Estate, Matthew Cohen from Core Real Estate, Raymond Lord from Douglas Elliman, Noah Kaplan from Nest Seekers International, and Sean McPeak from Compass, and Andrew and Stephen are sticking around with us. Good morning to all of you. Good, Good morning. Good Morning. So uh, I wanted to ask Niall a couple of questions first about a very big listing that he recently just put up on the real estate boards here in New York. It's at the, you know, Billionaire's Row 157 uh, one fifty seven West 57th Street. So give us a little uh, color on that listing. Actually, Matthew and I took a tour, broker tour with you uh, and Sean a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, I, we, we see many, many fantastic apartments in this town, but that really kind of blew me away unbelievable to think that you know you can have that kind of space up in the sky somewhere on the 50 something floor i think amazing
6: tell us it's apartment 53b that's so it's a five bed five and a half bath Uh, i call it a sky mansion i've been marketing it to to a lot of top global global brokers hong kong london monaco uh moscow paris for example and it's unbelievable. It's breathtaking. It's right at the dead center, uh, Central Park South, and you have unobstructed views of the city, uh, city to the south, and then Central Park to the north. It's got four exposures, and obviously, it's in the billionaire building, so the amenities are incredible, and it's right above the Park Hyatt. So you have um, all of the the same luxuries that you would get being in the hotel, the same in the in the condominium
1: what kind of interest are you getting you know you don't have to give a specific though but sure. you you seeing you know foreign foreign investors coming in foreign buyers coming in any domestic people at that price point because it's a very expensive apartment compared to you know lots of other stuff in this town.
6: Yeah, no problem. So I think uh, the first thing to know is that I have it on the market for two ways. For sale, uh, and it's listed for $33 million, just shy, thirty two nine five, dollars 95 And uh, it's also on the market for lease, so $65,000 furnished. Um, in the last two weeks, I would say more of the interest has been on the on the for lease side. Uh, we have probably five or six showings, and we do have a, an offer on the lease. For sale, it's been very interesting. I've, I've had a number of inquiries. Uh, brokers have reached out clients from Monaco, uh, Moscow, which is interesting for me because I haven't heard too much about Russians uh, in the market for some time, so that's also interesting. And then um, a couple domestic, one being uh, in the Midwest. So just to give you an idea of of, of the, I guess the, the how dynamic it is in terms of folks uh, expressing interest. Uh, so it's it's just very interesting to see. I'm also having uh, one other showing. Um, it's it's another international. I don't know where, but um, that's basically the appointment's about a month. Out, and that's specifically for investment purposes only. So um, that would be so like out of the four sales inquiries, you know, one is investment, and then three are going to be for primary res- residents slash pied a terre. Very interesting. Lots of luck on that sales. Thank you very, very
1: much. Appreciate you guys coming by. You need to keep us updated on that. All right. So All moving right. on, setting a price can be an emotionally charged task for a seller and list ex- expertise of a knowledge. Of, of knowledge of your broker to help you arrive at a competitive and realistic price. Pricing an apartment too can be too high and it can also backfire as the residents may languish on the market and give the impression of undesirability. Similarly, if you are forced to reduce the price, buyers may also infer there's something wrong with the apartment, so you can't win, win either way. While looking at the asking prices of similar apartments, uh, that may be tempting. It is prices of places in contract that give you a more accurate picture of what the market will bear. But setting a desirable price and one that will help your, t- your target buyer find you is not strictly a data-driven decision. And I've kind of seen this you know, through the years. Consider the psychological factors that are involved in a seller trying to come up with their knowledgeable broker, the right price for an apartment. So what are some of these psychological factors? I mean, I think we've all been in this business long enough and we've all seen enough of this to kind of break it apart and, and and you know comment about it what what what's the psychological I stuff on it i think sometimes it's pride a lot of people have pride in the sales price
8: I also think, I mean, if you own an apartment or a house for a long time, you it's your baby. You know, you always think it's worth more than it actually is, or for the most part. Um, I don't know, whenever I meet with new agents and they ask me advice, they always ask me about pitches. Like, they always ask me about, you know, pitching in to get a new listing and how do you go about the pricing and and things like that. And and I'll say to them, you know, it's it's something that you definitely have to do a lot of research on, but you also just have to have a lot of knowledge about what you're talking about. And it's an emotional process. So if the seller is emotional, you should be emotional. It's It sounds a little wild, but I, that's kind of how I go about things. I mean, I, I had a listing earlier this year that I was up against a lot of brokers. Like it was one of those sellers that really just wanted to talk to everyone. And um, he wound up calling me a few weeks later and he said, you were actually the lowest price that came to us, but we agree with how you got there the most. So you just never really know what you're going to connect with towards a seller, but you should always go with your gut and you should never give a higher price because you think that's what they want.
1: Explain that a little bit, Matt. It's how you got there that mattered versus the price because that's big.
8: I mean, when you have the knowledge and not only from doing the research, but being able to you know talk about news and other brokers that you know I mean I talk with other brokers that I'm really friendly with before I'll put a listing on the market so who better to get pricing knowledge from than other brokers who are selling in the same arena I don't know
9: I think I think there's like also an element of people um, wanting to price and they think that maybe they'll just get it for their uh, particular property I just think there's maybe a shot if I just you know if I put it on for an extra 50 or 100 grand. Uh maybe there's a there's a chance that somebody will come up and you know they think that they might be losing uh, leaving money on the table, rather. Um, that
2: has to be so market specific, though. You have to know your market and you have to know how to strategize for that market. because I mean, for the last, you know, when the market was on fire and everybody is throwing money at every apartment, I would actually price conservatively and get well more every single time than you would have if you priced aggressively, but every b- time.
1: But bingo, there's one psychological But it's
2: a risk. It's always a risk.
1: It, it, it's a big risk. But how, you know, and I've tried to do this multiple times in the past, a couple of times successfully and a couple of times not. But so how do you really convince, because I like that strategy, but how do you really convince a seller that, in this hot heated marketplace we're going to do something a little different but yet we're going to yield probably a lot more how do you because do-
2: you you talk about you know mm-hmm. you, you really have to walk them through this through the strategy and you know holding a listing off until that first open house talking about having you know everyone has hour and a half open houses now it used to be 2 hours getting people in all at the same time building that buzz building that that electricity at that mar- at at that open house it's um, it's kind of undeniable. And and as an experienced broker, you're going to walk into an apartment and you're going to feel it the way that a buyer is going to feel it when they walk in. So you know the kind of um, feedback you're going to get somewhat.
10: Reading that competition is key. Yeah. Yeah. Noah. Yeah, it also depends on who the seller is, right? If it's a if it's a resale, it's an owner versus a developer. A developer has a certain amount of money they've put into it, and they want to get a certain return. Um, also, I work. I happen to work with uh, you know with Ryan Sirhan for Million Dollar Listing, and so he's got this huge TV presence, and we're actually filming for a townhouse and putting on the market in Park Slope um, in the beginning of January. And, um, you know, sometimes uh, someone thinks, oh, well, here's a TV star, I'm going to be getting, you know, maximum exposure on the property, I'm going to list for, you know, a price that I really, that I think I can get, because we're going to just hit it out of the ballpark. And that sometimes that does happen. Um, so even though we may want to price, you know, say to, conservatively, they'll say, hey, look, you know, you've got all this presence, we're gonna, we're gonna price at, a, at a, you know, we're gonna hit it out of the ballpark, and we're gonna start. You but know. there's something called shelf life, just like you know, in the old days, magazine
1: magazine, you know, uh, spreads a beautiful priced apartments, et cetera. So in in the TV situation, by the time that airs, you know, that listing is probably already sold. So I get what the seller is thinking about. Well, maybe because it's a certain you know TV star, and maybe because I can add you know hundred thousand dollars more to the asking price. It doesn't always work out that way. On the heels of that, someone in your building with an apartment just like yours, same layout, just a different floor, is also selling their place. What should you do? in your strategy present the best of the two products so for example two one bedrooms in the same and we've all run up against this I've had four one bedrooms on the market this year a couple of months ago at the same time different layouts different floors but basically all in the same price point so the seller says well what are you going to do different to make my apartment sell first before the other three or four price yeah
7: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah just it
1: just goes out of price and, and
8: what, that, is it right? mean, really? but also and the package I, yeah, mean, I mean Louise most... always talks about it like if the other unit is not Packaged as nicely as yours, that's a huge benefit to you, obviously.
9: Yeah, but the packaging is the packaging, the presentation, the not uh, being knowledgeable about your competition and being able to speak with authority about <clears throat> those other units on the market. When people walk into your unit and you say, "Oh, did you see twelve B?" Oh, you did. Okay, so you, s- you notice maybe the light wasn't the same as it is here. Or, you know, there's plus and minuses of every unit, but uh, knowing knowing exactly what you're talking about is is pretty key to differentiating your
8: product. I will say, though, I think, again, and we always repeat this, it's really important to work with that other broker. Like, if you can work with that other broker, because when you... And never, ever, ever speak badly about the other unit, because I think that actually speaking well about both is just advantageous to both. And I, and I think, you know, I like to keep track of my career so far and it's really it's probably not healthy because I have no life but it's um,
10: like I've I've had about 11 yes you do we went out to a Japanese true generation. we did we did good point you got me you like got uh, my hour. hour you can eat sushi <laughs> and we went the, to the movies uh, recently it's <laughs> true good point Okay, <laughs> I have like have like time tomorrow
8: no I was counting the other day that I, I've had 11 situations where I've sold a two bedroom in a building where there was another two bedroom on the market in the same building at the same time and only two out of those 11 times did I not know the other broker but the other nine, I really worked with the broker that I knew, and we kind of just worked on it together um, because, you know, the if other you're- The listing broker you're saying? Yeah. Okay. It's just because you're selling, it's funny, even though obviously you're selling a specific unit, especially with specific buildings, you're also
1: selling that building. So if you but can work together to sell that building and that product. But in my case, I had three or four one bedrooms in the same building, all of my listings, I wasn't competing against other agents in that building. And when you have a seller that says, "Well, I want hundred thousand dollars more because I'm on a higher floor," well, guess what? You can't.
9: I, I think that working with the other broker, but in, with regards to the buyer's broker, is even more important when it comes to something like this because, you know, they could have someone who's unresponsive and um, who's not easy to work with and not transparent on, you know, floor 13 or wherever. Uh, but you know, if you present that, you're going to make them look like a rock star to their client. You're going to give them all the information. Who knows? You maybe do a board package for them. You never know. Um, you that might put you over the edge. And if they're, you know, a lot of times when a, a buyer is looking at a very similar product, they're going to ask their broker, and their broker might be the difference maker. So I think of that if you're if you're really upfront with the broker and really easy going with the broker, they're going to choose you, and it's not even going to be about the apartment.
1: But I, you're right, absolutely. And Anna's point earlier was, you know, it all comes down to price, and it really, really does. And sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, when I have a really stu- stubborn seller who doesn't really want to understand, I will take them out to see apartments in the price range that they want to list for. Mm -hmm. And then I take them out to show them and I've done this only a few times, but it does work. Show them stuff where they should be listing and they get it and they see the difference. And of course the data of the closed sales. Uh, doesn't hurt, but, you know, they don't always want to hear that. Anyway, we have to take a break. We are live from Blastoff Productions here in New York City. This is Good Morning New York. We will come right back after these messages and talk about the Fed's latest uh, increase in uh, rates. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk
0: station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
5: It's not easy to make it big in New York City. It's even harder to sustain that success for decades. However, two teams have defied those odds due to their formulas for success. Both have all-star rosters performing at the top of their game. Each have an undying commitment to greatness, a willingness to evolve, superior training programs, and ownership that invests heavily in their product it only seemed natural for the world's most valuable sports brand to partner with Halstead, a market leader in the New York metro area, and now proudly serving as the official luxury real estate firm of the New York Yankees.
0: stimulating talk it gets those
7: synapses in the brain firing really fast
0: all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com you are listening to good morning new york real estate with vince rocco If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. Everybody, we are back with Niall, Anna, Matthew,
1: Raymond, uh, Noah, Sean, And uh, Steve and Andrew are sticking around with us. So last Thursday, the Fed Reserve voted to increase interest rates for the third (coughs) time this year, a move widely anticipated by statements from Fed officials in last week's Strong Jobs Report. With the economy growing steadily, the Fed increased borrowing rates to help keep the pace of growth at sustainable levels. However, 30-year fixed mortgage rates have already risen in anticipation of this shift and the longer-term rates uh, reacted uh, very little to last week's announcement. So, question to brokers and our mortgage banker here: How does this affect the housing market in New York City, or will it? I mean, people have been expecting another uh, increase because we've talked about it all year. But do, how does this really affect the the buyers out there? I guess even the sellers. I think there's always York.
2: there's always a little bit of a um, of a lull while people kind of adjust to the new norm. But then that's just be, it just becomes the way it is.
1: And in, it's New York. I think, I think it instills and a sense of urgency. still low, by the way. Go ahead. Well, I think it
9: can instill like a, an sense of urgency. People might want to jump on it before their, their rate goes up. But I'd say for the most part, New York doesn't – this type of increase isn't going to price a lot of people out. Um, but they are planning, what, three for next year?
8: Well, so uh, this year.
9: They're anticipating. no, no
8: For next year, for they're next anticipating year the more, three more. Normally, I would agree. And I would say that it definitely creates urgency. But I also think that in this specific market that we're in – it actually balances things out a little bit. I think since you know the news of just you know the tax plan, I think that wh- whatever emotional buyers out there are harping on that, I think this might actually uh, you know get them to go back to where they were before the tax plan was announced.
4: This, Stephen, I I agree. I think that there are more concerns as it relates to uh, tax reform and what the end result will be at the moment. And I think that's creating more trepidation in the market than actual specific interest rates. Because the fact is, is money is still extremely fluid. We're lending and, you know, interest rates are anywhere from mid twos to mid fours, depending on loan products. So, how, so how very,
1: what are you hearing about the tax reform bill as far as, you know, how it's going to... Be? I, I, I know, we, 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 only, we, have, we only have 30 seconds on that right. one. But, walked right but, into it. You know, just... Yes, exactly, thank exactly. you. But seriously, because I know buyers must be asking you, as well as their attorney... Hey, how is this going to affect me? and what should I do about this?
4: I think it's hard to tell at the moment, quite candidly. I think nothing has been baked fully in terms of what tax reform yeah. is. We've seen kind of a a, a a leveling in terms of some of the interest rate deductions in terms of mortgage interest. At one point it was a million, then it dropped to five hundred thousand. Now yeah. it seems we're settling at seven fifty. I think some of the bigger concerns are around some of the salt taxes, the New York state specific. Significant. Uh, The ability to deduct real estate taxes alone with New York State income tax, I think, will be much more significant than let's say, you know, mortgage tax interest deductions. But we'll see.
1: I've had a couple of people seem to be hesitating on the buyer side saying, well, I don't know what this tax bill is gonna do if I buy now, if I buy tomorrow, maybe I should wait six months. You know, I haven't seen a lot of it, but I have seen a little bit of it. So, you know, a little cause for concern potentially. So um, I, you know who knows where that's going to go but what 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 is the uh, the
4: latest as of I guess last week uh, 30 year fixed uh, rate, competitive rate. So you're somewhere in the mid to high threes, depending on loan products, right? Um, so I mean, that's that's insane. it's insane. My it's parents so bought great. their
2: house; it was like 17 and a half. Les, and yeah, it
1: yeah, was so excited. Exactly, they got a deal. Fine, yeah. exactly. That's yeah. an, an unbelievable amount of uh, uh, interest rate, rather. And so they go up, and maybe it's going to be another three times next year. But we're still at historic lows. My first mortgage rate was 17 percent, also, right. yeah. and, then 12% and, then yeah. and, and then 12 percent, and then 11 percent,
2: and then twelve was the way a down deal, and then seven was a deal. Twelve was I mean, a deal. Oh my right. God, So now if it goes was up to four, everyone starts freaking out. Now it's free. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right,
1: moving on. In the age of millennials, here we go again. Where price needs to be right and affordable for them to purchase. To find jobs and career focus are also important, but so is love. So, as a resident of one of New York City's boroughs, <laughs> how, how important is it to date someone in the same borough, or is it not? How do you keep <gasps> the flames of love alive, even when the object of them, though? <laughs> <laughs> Wait right there even when, you, even the when you think above. about these loves of your life living in another borough so or or two boroughs away so how you know and more importantly how does this how oh, does this so affect good. or jersey that's right that's another borough actually so how does it seriously how does it affect you know a millennial as we're using this term today Ah, uh, their house search—whether it's a sale or
10: whether it's a rental—here to report no for the next thirty minutes in. on love, Mr. Matt Cohen. <laughs> 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 no, this is such a fun and topic. And um, thirty minutes. Right? I'm
8: actually excited. About I'm, how you feel about this? Like, I mean, give it to me. Personally, um, I have been going on a few dates with a guy who lives in my neighborhood, oh, and God. it is very convenient. <laughs> I, I do. I will say that the five block um, radius thing works. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it works, but it's convenient. But I, I think I think funnier <laughs> than that is is the people I know. Like my clients and my friends, constantly will say, talk about like people in their own building, and I mean. I'm very conservative, so I think that's a disaster waiting to happen. Like, what if it doesn't I'm work out? There. Yeah, and you, you see each other in the elevator. That's a fun ride. And
3: more ways than one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're
0: but I, on. I
8: mean, I have a lot of friends, and I used to be years ago the kind of person who, especially on these new dating apps these days, I'd be like, someone in Brooklyn, what? No, left like out well, of my. I agree out. with you. It. It's <laughs> <my laughs> not happening. I mean, you, you have to be borough centric. <laughs> so, <laughs> so critical. no no judgment if you live in Jersey or you live in Brooklyn or Queens. It's just, just not my thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, the thing is, you met somebody who lives in one of these outer boroughs. You are now in the process of needing to move for whatever the reason is, either buying or renting, and you need to consider staying in the borough that you currently live in, or moving to the borough where that new person in your life is. So so how do you really deal with that? No,
8: everything's temporary in life. So I always say, I'm I'm sorry, I always Um, say, I say a lot of things before you, you know, especially before you get married and settle down is temporary. So I, I mean, how can we say to our clients that, you know, you shouldn't live somewhere based on where you work? But, we, we should, but we'll should, but we tell them that they should live somewhere based on what their relationship is. Well, I think that they have I would to tell go inside. To run away from that. Because I, I if something to. goes south, yeah. you have to see them all the time.
10: That's why I love living in Upper East Side because then I could go to where I needed to go to meet people. Because nobody else lives there. Well, yeah, right. I heard yeah. that you're the only one. Well, if right? you're gay.
8: It's not really common, but there is a new box that's coming in 93rd. Street.
1: It is. True. But wait a minute. I'm going to pick this apart a little bit more because you know, so, you're, so people tend to want to live where they work or close to where they work, right? So why wouldn't they want to live close to where their loved one is. I mean, because I no,
8: because I, always, right, I always say to people, I mean, what if your office moves? Uh, then you're kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, shadow out of luck. I mean, <laughs> so if you, what if you break up with your boyfriend or girlfriend? What if someone cheats on you, like, or you cheat on them? Like, don't make a huge real estate well, decision around moves, this. If you're not
2: heartbroken. Right. If you, if you break up with somebody and you know that they live three blocks away, it's kind That's of like a whole, there's th- a cloud a over York your New neighborhood. State, I think
9: it's about yeah. compromise, and I think <laughs> – you can if it's someone who lives in Brooklyn and let's say Williamsburg, and you're moving and you're in Chelsea, maybe you just move a little further south towards 14th Street so you can take the L to see them' That's probably yeah, what I would say.
6: your
1: way down. Also, wait down. for for people out there who aren't. But we're assuming that a borough is two blocks long, so Brooklyn is very big. Manhattan is very big. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could still break up with someone and not see them in that borough ever again. I mean, hold on, no, this no, this city is small. This yeah. city is for people
8: story. out there, I mean, yeah. they don't know that you could live. I mean, I live in Chelsea. I could date someone who lives in Bushwick and it could literally take me an hour to get there mm-hmm. if there's traffic so that's like going from, that's like in some places going from one state to another state so I but mean that's, about, how, that's, how things, things, that that's how
2: things some sometimes get more serious. When I met my husband he was living in Hoboken. I was in the East Village and we got very serious very quickly. I and, hope you flew into
8: Teterboro and, 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 <laughs> and yeah, I did
2: <laughs> I uh, tele- teleported um, and, and very quickly he was like bunker down in my studio in the East Village and,
3: you know. Well, yeah, yeah of course, because
2: you're beautiful
8: history. and and any guy who would date you would do, like, would please you.
2: This is turning into a different kind of
1: thing. <laughs> <movie. laughs> I will personally say, <laughs>
10: I'll personally say, I think that the distance between me and the girl that I was dating, and I'm still dating, uh, was very helpful. She lived in Upper Manhattan I live in Park Slope, Brooklyn. Right. And that was nice. I saw her on a weekly basis for right. uh you know, several months, and now it's my first long-term, long-distance relationship I'm going to see her in Tokyo in f- wow. point, like four days. That's a little more than just another borough, mister. That's yes. right. And I, what I'm saying is that that distance helped uh, foster the program. relationship so I wouldn't, yeah. All right. So, so It's, it's so,
8: all personal. Just like the apartment itself, personal. it's all personal. Every relationship's different. Some are independent, some are dependent. I think that when you have more of an independent relationship, something like that works better. Okay,
1: so putting our broker hat back on versus our <laughs> personal hat and your client says to you, so here's my situation and -and so-and-so lives there and I need to go I don't know where but what do you say to them?
10: I actually I would say you should should be open I would would direct them to (laughs) transportation
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah
8: I would say you should be you should have an open mind in every aspect of your purchasing well process. I, I'd, I'd be like I'd be like, oh, your girlfriend lives in Park Slope. Let's look in the East Village. Like I, I think I kind of, you
2: have to have a little bit more of a relationship with that particular buyer to be able to be honest. And, we will continue
1: this conversation during the break. Actually, this is our last break. We got to go. We're out of time. That's it for me. Thanks to my guests and my panelists. Always until next time. Be kind to one another. Good Morning New York is off for the next two weeks. We will be returning to the airwaves on January 9th for all of us at Voice America all around the world. Thanks for joining us. Merry Christmas. And have a great time. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Goodbye, everybody.
0: Thanks for tuning in this week.